But I don't. I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. And we are at the midpoint of Roland Garros 2022. Iga Swiatek lost a set for the first time since Stuttgart. Well, you, you kind of set people up for a bit of a heart attack if they haven't been following <laughs> the tennis. It's uh, a little bit further than the midpoint right now because as of this recording, all quarterfinal matches have been set. I love this. This never happens for us. At the moment we're recording, we can talk about all the quarterfinals together, not in, you know, future who we expect to be there. The men's and women's draws are at the same spot. Before we get into the upsets, of which there were quite a few, let's just briefly mention what those draws are in the quarterfinals. Let's start with the woman and then work backwards. So on the woman's side, the top half, Iga Svantec plays Jessica Pagulo, Veronica Kudermetova plays Dasha Kasatkina. Martina Trevisan against Leila Annie Fernandez and Coco Goff against Sloane Stevens. And what this represents is one WTA top 10 player making the final eight. And when you put it in those terms, you're tempted to think, well, oh my God, dire. <laughs> but the people who are here, they all make sense. We've got three American women here. One of them has been a runner up. She's been in the second week a bunch of times. That's Sloane Stevens. Coco Goff is, you know, making her way through this draw in a really impressive and kind of grown-up way. Defending her quarterfinal points from last year like it's no big deal. Fernandez, the recent U.S. Open runner-up, is beating Seeds, Benchich, and Anisimova. Anisimova, who many people thought could have been the favorite to reach the final in the bottom half. I'm pretty sure I had her making the semifinals. Yeah, yeah, I think I did too. And Martina Trevisan, who made the quarterfinals 2020 at Roland Garros. So, you know, mostly not top 10 players here. And well, also coming top. off of a title. Right. This this isn't coming out of nowhere. And then on the top half, obviously, Iga Svantec, Jesse Pegula, who was the runner-up in Madrid to Anshabur. Kuda Mertova's had a great season. And Dasha Kazatkina turns it on every once in a while. And it feels like she has a game made for clay. So... Yeah, you know, this is this is the WTA in 2022. Like, get used to it. This is not the top 10, but it's a it's a pretty good group. I, I, I like these these quarterfinals. It's hilarious to me how quickly the discussion changes around the WTA tour and the, the current state of it from almost day to day. Because heading into the third round, the round of 16, as the draw was devastated... There was a sense of panic as to like, okay, this parity thing, this depth thing, this has gone too far. Like, what is happening? This is <laughs> this is untenable. And then the quarterfinals happen, and then you look at it and you're like, okay, perfect sense. <laughs> right, right. And I understand that maybe where the WTA is right now is not everyone's ideal. And it's not my ideal as well. Like, you know, I like to have a crop of consistent high achieving players 
I'd like to see rivalries develop. I totally get it. But this is what we have, and I am going to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I was talking to a friend about this. This is certainly an odd moment in women's tennis history. I'll give you that. Because in the top 10 throughout history, there's almost always been a GOAT, right? There's there's always been a Chrissy, a Martina, Steffi, Serena. They There's always been someone to take over and pretty quickly. And we're in such a weird stage. Like, But when we look back in retrospect, will one of these top players be a legend? You know, will Iga be that person? But we've also always had those consistently top 10, top 20 players who maybe peaked with a slam final like an Uncle Uber or super talented players who were mostly in the top 10, in and out of the top 10, showed slam winning potential and in fact did that a couple times in Mary Pierce. Mm-hmm. But the overall week to week, year to year statistics weren't there. So I think to your point, it's always easier to look back and make judgments about top 10s rather than the times that were actually living them. Mm-hmm. And there were times in the 90s where sports writers were saying, this tour sucks. It's so boring. All it is is Steffi winning everything and no one else can play. And, I, I grew up in that time right. on the women's tour. And in retrospect, I don't think that we look that badly on the 90s now, or, or I don't think we should. So I think this period in women's tennis is, it's unique But I do think it'll look differently in 10, 15 years. And at that time, if you had a top 10 player or say a top eight seed lose before the third round, it was a calamitous event. (laughs) There were scenes like Steffi Graf losing before the fourth round. Unheard of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like Djokovic or Federer, you know, in in the 2010s losing in an early round. It's unheard of. And the reason for that was because the gap between the top players and the lesser ranked players was so wide. It need not be repeated again, but I will repeat it again that that is just (laughs) not the case anymore. Yeah. Where we started at this tournament, we were on course by seeding to have Jabir play Sakari in the quarterfinals, to have Kantavate play Krejcikova. Shriantek play Pliskova or Pegula, and that has happened, mm-hmm. but Dosa against Sabalenka. And even then, if not for those two, Rybakina or Danielle Collins, that didn't happen either. Yeah. A few of those players were knocked out very early. So let's let's go through the upsets first. Barbora Krejcikova, defending champion, number two seed. We were not sure what to think about her form. I definitely overestimated, like I really believed in Babs and her new kit. However. How many runs did you have her winning? I think I had her I winning maybe two. Three or four. That definitely I was, pretty was a on, lot. I think I had her in the quarters. She hadn't played on tour since the end of February in Doha. Right. But she's a woman of mystery. You know, I was giving her that, that benefit. I did the opposite to Medvedev and he overachieved. Mm. So Krejcikova loses to Diane Perry, who... Unfortunately, I had never heard of, but is quite successful on clay in the the lower leagues. You're just going to put your ignorance out there like that? Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, I, I saw the name and I was like, you know what? That sounds like one of those fake names they make up in tennis video games. I have li- literally never seen her name. Oh, my God. <laughs> Anz Jabour, we all know. 
This was a big one. I am so sorry to Magda Lynette because we did not even mention her name. We did not utter her name in the preview episode because I just assumed it was an easy win. And damn, number four and number five, Sakari and Contivate. Sakari lost to Karolina Muchova, who I think everyone is excited to see back, but unfortunately left Paris in a boot. Yeah, I mean, the bad luck just keeps coming for her. Mm-hmm. Contivate still has the chance to rise to the number two ranking despite losing in the first round. Now people are mad, but remember, it's a 12-month ranking system. This is just how it works. At this point, the only person who can stop her is Jesse Pagula if she wins the title. Okay. So it's... It's still possible. It's still possible. But, you know... It's still possible for what? For her to do it. I think it's more likely that Contivate <laughs> will be number two at the end of it this is, tournament. It is. Samsonova, who we thought might be a really tough out for Shriantek in the third round. She lost in round one to Danka Kovanich. Man, people were really mad at us for how much we talked up Samsonova on the preview episode. Why? Did it influence people's picks? It seems so. Oh. But I did say, hey, Kovanich was a runner-up at Charleston last year. Mm-hmm. She's good on the surface. The one upset that... You just had to see as like a distinct possibility, and it ended up coming to fruition. Was Garbinia Muguruza losing to always the seed killer Kaya Kinepi? <laughs> yeah, there are. I believe there are only three active players who've beaten more seeds in the first three rounds of majors than Kaya Kinepi. This woman, it, she's like ageless. Amaradakanu. The number 12 seed lost in the second round to Sasnovich. Sasnovich went on to beat Kerber. Simona Halep on course to play Iga Sviantek in the fourth round at Roland Garros for seemingly the 17th time. Went out in round two to Zhang Qinwen. Who the kids are calling Queen Wen. And if you watch her play, you can see why. And then the other women's seed of note to fall, Karolina Pliskova in round two. To the number 227 former college player, Leolia Jean-Jean. But back to Miss Halep for a moment. Yeah, let's talk about this. Simona Halep was very open in her press conference and explained that she had a panic attack during her match with Jean. She was actually leading. She won the first set. And she said she had a, quote, little panic attack, let's say. It's new and I don't know how to handle it. It was tough to breathe. And I was not very clear in what I'm doing. It was a very difficult moment. I can understand why it happened, because I had two tough years with injuries and a lot of pressure with the pandemic and stuff. So probably today I just broke down a little bit. This was after Patrick Moratoglu. If you go to his Instagram page, you can find the full text of it. And uh, his bio is just in all caps, THE COACH. (laughs) And along those lines, he said... Preempting Simona Halep, I've always been proud of my successes with my players, but then I also have to acknowledge when I'm not doing a good enough job. The results we've had the past month in Madrid, Rome, and Roland Garros are insufficient for someone of at Simona Halep's caliber, and I take full responsibility for them. She is fully dedicated, motivated, gives it everything on every ball. She's a champion. Her track record speaks for itself. I expect much better from myself. And I want to extend my apologies to her fans who have always been so supportive. Now, the ego of this man 
what is it ever not about him? If the only... He's shown now that if the only way that he can make it about him is to throw himself under the bus, he is willing to do it. I just... I don't get it. Why he would center himself in this. Simona was very vulnerable in the press and she explained what was going on. And it doesn't really have a lot to do with him. It has to do with her. And before the tournament started, she talked about the calf injury that she suffered last year. She missed Roland Garros and Wimbledon, where she was the defending champion. She said it was the worst injury of her career. And it brought her to a really dark place, like a really low place emotionally. She even said that she contemplated retiring. Mm -hmm. She was close to retiring at the start of this year. And then she hooked up with Patrick after having this renewed vigor right. with her tennis. And she does. She credits Patrick with bringing back uh, a lot of her fire and confidence. And I think she is someone who likes to have a strong leader in her camp. But so it's totally understandable that she's still feeling the after effects of such a difficult year, the pandemic. And when you come back on court, you may not understand what's happening in your head. Uh, and it may be very difficult to deal with it. And so I hope she's okay. And I hope that Patrick sort of uh, stays a little quieter. There, There is no chance of that <laughs> happening. Let's talk about a few of the players who are still around, some of the notable matches that have happened, some of the breakout players, just to, the, the things that come to our mind, the yeah. things we noticed. Just a little roundup of the early rounds. I think we should start with Zhang Qingwen, because... This this seems like a moment. Okay. <laughs> She's still a teenager. She's 19 years old. She has been talking about how she was eager to face Iga Swiatek, And you could just feel it. Feel it in your bones that she was really going to take it to her. Watching that match, the first set was an all-out brawl. Wow. Aided, aided by Iga uncharacteristically of her during the last few months during her win streak, letting up at crucial moments in that set. Mm -hmm. And it, it felt that she didn't really have a plan and that Zhang was showing her something different that maybe some of the other opponents aren't. Zhang was doing a lot of heavy hitting, heavy topspin forehands that were pushing Iga back. And then she could finish the point with a flat down the line backhand. Late in that set, she kind of did a little tricky forehand drop shot with Iga way in the back of the court. But also, one of the things that I feel a lot of the women have not been able to do well against Iga during her imperious stretch mm. is return her serve. Because Iga's serve is not that great, Bob. It just, I mean... <laughs> the second serve, you've got, you just have to attack it. Uh, and on average, you would think that her serve would have been broken more than it has been, that more pressure would have been put on her within matches because of her serve. And Zhang was able to do that today. Added to which, those short angled power shots that Iga loves to hit to really open up the court and finish points, Zhang was able to get to those, not routinely, but not have it be as big a weapon for Iga. Mm -hmm. This... Uh, watching her game was such a revelation today. Like, she really could be a superstar. Okay, we're not doing that. <laughs> no, but 
you know, the minute you let Iga take control of a rally, like she's going to try to pound you into the ground. Mm-hmm. And Zhang did a good job in the first set of not letting that happen. Into the second set where Iga bageled, another bagel, mm-hmm. you may look at the score and think, well, well, that's Iga for you. But Zhang was going through some physical issues in that second set. It seemed to be when she went down three love and called for the trainer that it was a leg issue. Came back with it strapped and... We find out after the match that more than the leg issue, she was dealing with period pains. Oh, I didn't hear that. And this is something that I think, thankfully, we're hearing women athletes talk about more and more mm-hmm. in re- in just the last few months. We I forget her name. Her name escapes me. But a top golfer talked about this a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And of course, this is something that obviously is going to influence match how many matches have we sat there and watched like idiots not considering that this could be a reason why somebody is quote-unquote underperforming right a it's none of our business but also yes but it's a fact of life that it's a taboo to talk about yeah like you know there's a reason the tampon and maxi pad ads use this blue coloring people can't even handle thinking about menstruation can you imagine if andre rublev had a period on a tennis court if some of these men had to deal with menstruation (laughs) while playing tennis we would certainly hear about it like i mean they would be begging to play best of three at slams yeah but it is it is a good reminder to everyone including us that Uh, We shouldn't push too hard on bathroom breaks (laughs) because we really never know what someone is dealing with. So bottom line, Zhang Xingwen, remember that name. Apparently she's given herself the nickname of Anna. That's her... Her English name? Perhaps. All right. I mean, because we're probably not pronouncing her first name correctly. One of my faves, Dasha Kazatkina, has been cruising... Fun fact. I know you love fun facts. Mm-hmm. She's lost the fewest games out of anyone so far. Ten games lost. She's served two bagel sets. And she has tied with a few others for the shortest match of the tournament at 54 minutes. She beat Shelby Rogers, who is like designed to take out seeds at majors. Beat Camilla Georgie. While Papa Georgie was caught smoking. Vaping, I guess. I assume it's vaping. I didn't see the device, whether it was a cigarette or a vape. It was funny. He was under a towel and then emerged blowing smoke out of his mouth. This is only the third quarterfinal that Kasatkina has made in her career at a slam. Following back-to-back French Open and Wimbledon quarterfinals in her breakout year 2018. Mm. And for me, that does a disservice to her talent. And for me, she's one of the more fun players to watch on either tour. Yes, no, maybe so. I agree. You know I love her. Miss Angelique Kerber. She came in the tournament, fresh off winning a title. She could have been tired, totally worn out. And then she gives us the best first round match of the tournament against Frech. Both players saving match points. Kerber saved two match points in the third set. They're on an outside court with a bad camera angle. The crowd atmosphere was incredible. People were just so enthralled by this battle. 
And Freck, for her part, was, I mean, scrambling in the back of the court and returning everything deep. She made it really difficult for Angie. But it was so much fun to watch. Kerber came back, won her second match before going out to Sasnovich in round three. Yes. Coco Goff. We mentioned Coco. that she has defended her quarterfinal points from last year. I personally picked her to make the semifinals. One of the few good picks I made on either draw. <laughs> she beat Kai Kanepi, beat Elisa Martins. Easily. Reach- yeah. Just, yeah. she bageled Martins in that second set. Martins is, as you know, the third round queen, but she made it to the fourth round here. And Coco was just, I feel like she's playing such mature, kind of level-headed tennis. She's built a game, surprisingly, around defense. And that's really not, I don't think that's what people thought of her when she was younger. You know, we saw a big serve, we saw big ground strokes, but defense and her speed is really like what's getting her these wins, I think. We saw that moment, was it in round one, where she had a word with the umpire ever so calmly? <laughs> I absolutely loved this. She just went over, she was uh, given a warning for coaching. And she explained that since she was little, she has asked her dad not to say anything, not to make any hand movements. She said, and- I cannot control the coaching. <laughs> Talk to God. (laughs) Right. It was just, it was too funny. No, she did not say that. I know. Okay. Venus Williams said that. Yes. About the wind. Mm -hmm. This is Coco Goff's fifth time in the second week of a slam. She's 18 years old. And I will not hear, I will not hear complaints about Coco's developing too slowly. Look at her, look at the resume. It's exactly on time Mm -hmm. for me. Sloane Stevens, who has a much more unorthodox career, a much more up-and-down career, sets up this quarterfinal with her countrywoman, Coco Gauff. Only their second meeting. Sloane beat her at the U.S. Open 6-4, 6-2. Sloane has won the U.S. Open as her sole slam title. This mm-hmm. we know. She's a runner-up to Simona Halep at the French Open. But the French Open is by far... Her best tournament. Yes. Not just best slam, her best tournament, period. She's made the fourth round, at least the fourth round, eight times in Paris. She's made the quarterfinals minimum three times, including this effort. She's only made the quarterfinals of a slam seven times in her career. Mm -hmm. So this is where she's feeling her best. And I mean, one of the stats... Victoria Kiss pointed this out on Twitter after she won the last 12 games against Jill Teichman in the fourth round. Sloan was down two love, so close to being down three love in that match, and then did not lose another game. She lost three points in the second set. Three, three points. Three points. Against someone who was supposed to beat her. Teichman is better on clay, or so, so we well, thought. Well, no. Teichman is in much better form. Yes. Because yes. Sloan had lost all four of her clay court matches leading up to the French Open. <laughs> right. But what this proves <laughs> is that, once again, if Sloan Stevens is feeling herself, there are few players on either tour who can go on a roll like her when yeah. she's in full mm-hmm. flight. 
and form coming into a tournament means very little for Sloane. So back to Victoria Case's point. She did that against Jill Teichman, 12 in a row. She also did it two rounds earlier against Sorona Kirstea. <laughs> she was down 6-3, 2-love to Kirstea and then won the last 12 games of that match, doing all of our bidding in that match. <laughs> like That was such a star-worthy turn for Sloane Stevens with that performance. You know, tennis is tough because, you know, I there should be awards for these types of performances, right? If you win 12 games in a row, basically a virtual double bagel, you should get an award or some extra money. Because if you don't win the tournament, you're, you've lost. No? This is getting dangerously into participation medals what is that what you call it participation (laughs) i know awards you grew up in jamaica you didn't have such things but as a millennial growing up in the u.s we did Mm -hmm. participation trophies uh perfect attendance uh, what was uh, a good citizenship awards yeah it's it's a no for me no okay it's a a no for me canadian layla fernandez had never won three consecutive matches on clay on the wta tour and this week, she reaches the quarterfinals by beating Benchich and Anisimova. This might be the most impressive performance of week one for me. Perhaps. Because how many people were really talking about Layla coming into this tournament? No. Let's move to the men's draw, where the seeds progressed far more steadily than the women's side. In the quarterfinals, we have number one Djokovic versus number five Nadal. Zverev versus Alcaraz. Rud versus Rune. I know that was bad, but it was better than Rune, right? I'm not doing anything <laughs> with that. And number seven, Rubla versus surprise quarterfinalist Marin Cilic. But should it be a surprise? We'll talk about that later. Six of the top eight seeds on the men's side advanced to the quarterfinals. Yes. And the top 12 men's seeds made the third round, which is the first at Roland Garros since 2009. The top nine made the fourth round. So, you know, a lot of consistency here. Very few surprising upsets early on. Do you know what also was very consistent on the men's side? What? A lot of men having big chances to score big upsets. And like a formula that worked perfectly every time, they all coughed up their leads. Yes. And failed to close. Can I say... I find men's tennis very predictable. I find the patterns very predictable. When a player challenges someone on their serve and has a few break points and fails to break, almost like clockwork, that person gets broken immediately afterward. These top seeds, a few of them, including Zverev, Taylor Fritz, Alcaraz even, Felix Ojeleasim, getting pushed by these unheralded guys losing the first two sets in some cases and really it was a predictable outcome the top guys would pull through in five sets and i think it shows there's a big gulf not in talent but in experience and in match management and belief frankly yes yes because ramos vignolas should have beaten carlos alcaraz right and this this guy is a great dirt baller right He's not unknown, but you had a few Latin American guys who, uh, I mean, Baez is is somebody who's proven 
how good he is on clay has won a title, but we have Rodriguez Taverna against Fritz, Varias against Felix. Who expected this? I picked Bias to beat that guy, and so I'm particularly salty <laughs> about that one. Oh, oh, you want to talk about being salty? I picked Davidovich Fokina to reach the semifinals. I picked him to go far as well. That's another <laughs> one that folks are mad at us about. Where, where, where are you getting this? On Twitter. Are people people are adding you? Yeah. And saying they're mad that they blame us. Yeah. I mean, then tune into real experts. Then. <laughs> Back to the Ramos Vignolas Alcaraz match because you watch that match and you watch Carlos come back and it feeds the machine of hype for Carlos Alcaraz, right? He oh, did yeah. amazing things to come back and win that match. Just absurd, long, improbable points he won to break serve late in that match. But also, bad decision-making from Ramos Vinales, mm-hmm. imprecise shot-making, and failing to close out points when he should have. Right. And it does show you that uh, you know, there are ways to to beat these guys. And, and Alcaraz is one of these guys at this point who we expect to pull through those matches. It's happened very quickly. But there are ways to beat them, right? Carlos didn't really appear to have a game plan for quite a while in that match. But this is the benefit of best of five for somebody who's fit enough. Well, that... I mean, he was able to pick up a bit of a game plan when he was apparently told to serve and volley three times in a row That's by his coach. Yeah. Yeah. He was caught after the match. Well, he caught himself. I mean, like... <laughs> he was he was asked, like, so why did you decide to do that then? Well, one car... Uh... I mean... <laughs> you know, like... The, the coaching is so obvious. If you're in the stadium, you can literally see it, right? You can actually hear coaches talking to players. And it's not being called. Patrick Marataglou supposedly says that Coaching is going to be allowed in the ATP. We'll see if that's true. But there's clearly an enforcement problem. But there's also a difference between being allowed on the ATP and then at a Grand Slam, which we've seen on the WTA Tour before. They make their own rules. Yes. So anyway, all these men scraped by by the, what, the skin of their chinny-chin-chin? Is that how you say it? Another mixed metaphor. (laughs) Skin of their teeth. Okay. Or by the hair on their chinny-chin-chin. Oh, okay. Got it. Yes. And they've kind of settled into where they are now. With the one caveat being Nadal tested so much by Felix Auger-Alessim in the round of 16. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Taken to five sets in the fourth round at the French Open. Like, wow. like, let's hear it for Felix. Because although he lost this match, because Nadal ramped it up and ended it really quickly... You were in the kitchen at the end of the fourth set into the fifth set, and you saw Nadal do his little stomp, 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 stomp. And you were like, well, here uh he comes. Uh Uh-oh. Here he comes. He won that one game, and here he comes. Now, when the double stomp is coming, you know he's into it. Because the match felt... Flat. It felt flat. It wasn't particularly great. It, It just felt like it was lacking energy. And it wasn't because Felix was lacking energy. I mean, he he brought it. I mean, but he's he, not a very demonstrative no. player. There's that. And then you also got the sense of reverence. Like he's got his <laughs> uncle half well, in his camp at that point playing Nadal. He's got Rafa's uncle yeah. half in his camp playing Nadal at this 
tournament Ooh. on his home court on his Philippe Chatrier. You know, like yeah. yeah. And Felix's demeanor is not one of say like a Halgarun, right? Mm. Where today after he won his round of sixteen match, he goes and digs up a tweet from like Roland Garros or tennis <laughs> TV from a week and a half ago giving the projected quarterfinalists. Yeah. And then with like replying with a wink or something like that. Like we get it. Like, dude. We get it. Stefanos is like in a bad place right now. Just leave it. Like, why are you consistently doing the most? Just like it is so cringe. Yeah, to me. yeah. Can just for a second, let's talk about the pronunciation. Because it's a difficult name. It is. It really is. And are you saying I've butched it? No, no, no. I I I'm not saying that I know how to say it either. But I heard Caroline Wozniacki say it, and I feel like she should be the expert. Mm-hmm. She's Danish. And then I saw people on Twitter saying, no, she said it wrong. I'm like, but she's Danish. Like, what? I don't get it. So a lot of the British commentators have just taken to saying un, like O-O-N. Mm. But there is like a phlegma, like a phlegma, that's not the word, phlegm, like hun. Okay. Like in the throat. That's That's what I heard. Caroline say. I mean, we are heading into Pride Month, so this is Holger's time to shine. <laughs> Stop. The the apologies. Let let him come. <laughs> anyway, back to Felix and Rafa. Felix did a great job. You're doing amazing, sweetie. Like the serve was on point, the forehand, the scrambling. I just I felt that he was so prepared for this match. The Tony Nadal thing is so awkward. Mm-hmm. Felix is paying him, presumably, to be like a part-time coach. I should hope so. Uh, Nadal is Tony's protege, his his creation. His kin. Yeah, and Tony is there. And instead of sitting in one player's box, he chooses to sit in the president's box right near the players, right near the service line. And allegedly, what after, the hell? allegedly after the match, he said he was rooting for Rafa. Come on, like... Dude, you can't do that. Even if you were, because he's family, why would you say that out loud? Yeah, see, that's the only thing I take issue with. Maybe you keep that to yourself. Well, I, but like, I'm not going to argue about where your heart is, right? But publicly, and to your player, you have to convince them that you are with them. 100%. Right, but Felix has a whole ass full-time coach. Okay. Separate and apart okay. from Tony Nadal. Yeah. Tony's there as a consultant. This, the, My point is, this all makes sense to me. Yes. This doesn't seem like something to get all torn up about. No, I, I do feel like people were making a lot of the Tony Nadal thing. I think people were doing the most. Um, it's a weird situation. I mean, but we had sisters playing each other on the WTA tour for many years, right? Like, this, is, this happens. For me, it's not that weird at all. The like, only thing, like, kind of like, odd is that Tony would say that out loud. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. But, you know, that's his business. Right, right. But Nadal pulled through that. He didn't really seem to be showing any signs of physical strain. But I don't, you know, his his game wasn't in tip-top shape. No. He's been scratchy at points. Even when he's won straight set matches early in the tournament, he's had blips, stretches of a couple games where it's like, eh. Yes. And we see this with older players. Mm-hmm. Uh, after what happened in Australia, I am not going to take that as reason to say he doesn't stand a chance against Djokovic because I would be a buffoon to do that. Oh, to make any prediction whatsoever? Especially against him at Roland Garros. Yeah. 
Like, yeah. did we not live through the fall October 2020 Roland Garros? Where right. it was cold. <laughs> He was expected to lose. It was under the roof. It was with different balls. It was super cold. And it was just, okay. And so now what I've been seeing a lot lately is folks saying that this is what Nadal does. He plays down his chances so that he can, you know, not have the expectation of Mm -hmm. winning. Mm -hmm. And then also come out looking like a warrior champion when he does. (laughs) Right. So we honestly don't know what kind of form he's going to come out with against Djokovic like he has to play better than he did against Felix yes will he but there is truth to that like there is maybe you could call it some false modesty that he does typically try to underplay his chances say oh I'm not the favorite at Roland Garros even when he clearly is you know not this year but in previous years and he fools uh, like ESPN broadcasters right (laughs) All the time. You were just watching, what was it? Pardon the interruption? Mm-hmm. When it all is a little bit doomsday in his predictions about his body, that always carries over through like the mainstream press. Well, it's different now too because he is unmistakably at the end of his career. Yeah. We don't know when it will happen, but given his tendency to speak about himself and his game like that from when he was in his 20s, when he's doing that now with that kind of realistic humility that Mm. sounds different that sounds like the end is really near when it could just be rafa being like hey i'm just here smelling the flowers like this is cool (laughs) i get to play roland garros again this feels like bonus exactly so let's talk about the novak rafa quarterfinal the schedule (laughs) rafa has played one night match so far the night matches here in Roland Garros are very strange. It's a new phenomenon. There's Second year, I think they're doing it. Is it? I think so. Yeah. Uh, Chatrier has a roof, just in case. There's one match. That's the night match. Therefore, it's always a men's match. Except for once, this tournament. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One match and it was has a been French a women's match. player, right? I believe so, yeah. yeah. This is just nothing more than an almighty cash grab. By the French Federation. Right, right. That's all it is. Because that you is can, all it is. You can sell tickets for a one-session night match. One match. And how much are you charging? These exorbitant prices for one match. It's crazy to me mm-hmm. that this is happening. And then you have players with not before 8.45 p.m. start times. 8.45? Like, what the f- What is that? Like, this, this is where I'm pissed off. For both players, if this match goes long, they're going to be playing until, what, 1 a.m., 2 a.m.? Then they have to do press. They have to cool down. They're going to it's be... It's unfair. If it's a five-set match, they're not getting back to their hotel room until, like, 5 a.m. Right, right. And then you have to wind down. I can't... After working a night shift, getting home at, like, 11, I can't... The earliest I can go to bed or fall asleep is three, four hours after that. <laughs> Minimum. Yes. And this is very physical mm-hmm. work. It's just... If you have one match for a night match, why does it need to start not before 8.45? To me, that's a failure of scheduling. And if you're going to take this approach and then have it be, well, for people to get their their money's worth, they have to get minimum three sets and thus it must be a men's match, even though it was probably going to be a men's match to begin with because that is the sexist nature of the system. Right. You could easily start it at 7.00. 
and say on some nights you have two women's matches. Exactly. Starting yeah. at seven or just the one match. Like, I, I, it's it's mind-boggling to me. This whole business of it's unfair to Rafa that he's playing the night match. I don't like it that he's playing the night match, but I can't be mad about it. I can't it. say it's unfair. I right? can't be mad about it. Djokovic and Nadal have both played one night match so far. Alcaraz has played three. Three of his four matches at night. And I think you can clearly see what's happening here. They know Alcaraz is generating a lot of engagement on social media. He is who they've chosen for the new star, and he probably will be that person. No, but he's also generating a lot of interest on his own organically. Yes, yes. And that's borne out in some of the... I saw something on YouTube whereby of Djokovic, Nadal, and Alcaraz highlight videos or whatever French Open videos of those three players, his had the most interest. Right, like right. Numbers are starting to bear out his presence in the game. So he's getting... And I don't even know if it's a prime spot. Like, I don't know if players want to play at night, but he's getting these night matches. Zverev is complaining how Alcaraz is getting special treatment. It's like, yeah, hello, have you ever seen the scheduling at a major? Do you think there was a time where you got that special treatment? Yes, indeed. Well, the point is it's not happening anymore because right. he is who he is, a failed top 10 player <laughs> who has yet to beat a top 10 player at a Grand Slam who is now getting to be long in the tooth for a tennis player to match his unnecessary height. <laughs> and No no body shaming. There's no... It's just, not a, just a matter of fact. He can't help that. And now you are being looked past because you have done, allegedly, some horrendous things that people won't abide... And your but, results do not make you undeniable. But let me say, like, outside of the abuse allegations, he seems like such a nice guy, right? Oh my god. <laughs> the point is, you are no longer organically part of the good conversation. And that is entirely your doing. Mm -hmm. So while some of the things that he's saying are absolutely true, they are also absolutely self-serving. Right. And I don't care about what's deleterious to this man anymore. I just don't. Putting my fan hat on for a second, I'm just upset about this French Open for Rafa because he's gotten uh, a real, like a historically difficult draw. And now he has to play Djokovic at night at 845. It's been chilly in Paris. Is it a historically difficult draw? Uh, well, I guess well, good, if up, he continues, yes, it will be. Yes, but up until this point, it hasn't been. It's been no, like no. But fan hat back off. I'm looking forward to the match. I'm not making any predictions about form. Djokovic is getting through his matches very easily. But am, we'll see. I'm not looking forward to it at all. I do not enjoy this matchup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I actually don't even enjoy the tennis that much. Yeah, I don't know what you were just saying because I know that to be untrue. Did I say I was looking forward? You to it? did say you were looking I, forward to it. Well, maybe that was a lie. I'm looking forward to it being over. <laughs> <laughs> so it has to happen for it to be over. We talked earlier about how so many of the top men went through unnecessary five-set matches and that the challengers were unable to close them out. One such player who emerged on the winning side of those encounters once too many before it caught up to him was Stefano Tsitsipas. Yeah. Yeah, so Stefano's had some difficult matches early on. I was, uh, you know, writing in this agenda, he's got to get it together because if he wants to get to the final and win, he can't be worn out by the likes of Musetti, Kolar. It just can't happen. 
And what happened today is that he lost a Holger. He lost a Holger Huna. See, that was a different pronunciation too. It, we'll we'll have to work on it. Yeah, we're we're workshopping it. And he came out of that match just, I mean, shattered, right? I, I watched some of his press, and it was kind of difficult to watch. There is one thing he can do to, I think, to help his career right now, and neither of us thinks he will do it. And that is to distance himself from his family. Like Daddy mm. Pass has to go, right? You are uh, you are yeah. stagnating. You made the final of the French Open last year. It was two sets to love up on Djokovic. The end of the rainbow was in sight. It was there. You were stone's throw from getting the jackpot. Mm-hmm. And I mean, okay, it's Djokovic. Fine. Like, I get that he's going to come back and win. But what's, you know, what's stopping you from reaching a second French Open final? And this was a, a pretty soft draw compared to a lot of people. Well, that's it, right? The bottom mm-hmm. half of the draw was an opportunity for everybody. And lo and yeah. behold, it looks like it may be Marin Cilic, who oh, is playing wow. the best tennis of the four. So, okay, let's talk about Medvedev and Cilic. Medvedev was sailing through the draw. There were no expectations for him at all. And he was quietly making his way through these matches easily. And he beat Ketsmanovic, which I, which I did not expect. No, I had Ketsmanovic winning. Yeah. So the draw has broken open. You still have the two seed in at the time. But only a few hours later, Marin Cilic utterly destroyed him. I I have never seen Marin Cilic play like this. And I say that because I did not watch the 2014 US Open final. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't watch it. Really? No, I was doing something else. Oh. That predated this podcast. I it had did. no you professional to. obligations to watch that match. It was mere months before we started. Yeah, and this happens, gosh, it happens a few months, a year, not too long ago, where Marin Cilic looked completely lost on a tennis court. He's still only 33 yeah. years old, but it looked like his best tennis was behind him. He was at that pivotal stage in his career where... You just don't know if there is another purple patch. Mm. And boy, was this a purple patch today because it was eye-opening stuff. Yes, Medvedev is playing on his least favorite surface. He has just come back from hernia surgery. All that stuff. Medvedev didn't play well. Yes. But Chilich was relentless. And he was feeling himself so much to the point where on his first match point, receiving serve on the ad court, second serve from Medvedev, out wide to what would be Chilich's backhand, Marin runs all the way around it to try and hit a glory shot winner <laughs> to win the match. Because that's how well things were going for him. Uh, yeah. I mean, it hit like the back of the court. But but he could lose that match point and be confident that he would get another one. I mean, he was up 5-1 mm-hmm. in the third set. Right. So. Granted, Roland Garros is his least successful major, but not unsuccessful. Mm. He is a junior boys champion in 2005, beating Andy Murray in the final. It's his sixth time in the second week and his third quarterfinal. He's now won 30 matches at Roland Garros, matching the 30 minimum that he's won at the other three slams. He's the only active player outside of uh, the top guys. I assume Andy Murray's in there, the big four. It's either the big three or the big four. I assume it's the big four in this case, (laughs) to have won 30 matches at all four slams. Mm -hmm. Another record. Felix Leger-Aliassime is the first 2000s baby to reach the second week of all four majors. And his last four, you, you just can't argue with it. 
quarterfinal, semi, quarter, round of 16. One last note on the men's side before we move on to some et ceteras. Yannick Sinner had to retire from his match against Andre Rublev today, winning the first set and then having a recurrence of leg issues, losing the second set and then retiring, I believe, down to love in the third set. And for all his prodigious talent, this result and what happened today underscores what will be probably his biggest concern in moving to the next level, the physical deficiencies in his game. Yeah, yeah. Because while this was unfortunate that this was an injury that happened to him, it's not a one-off thing. A few et ceteras before we finish this episode. Madison Keys and Taylor Townsend are playing doubles together. They have beaten two seeded teams to reach the quarterfinals. Number seven, Dolahide and Sanders, and number nine, Mohammed and Shibahara. Madison, for her part, made the round of 16 at this tournament. Yep. Before losing in three to Kudemirtova today. COVID is still a thing. Mm-hmm. Remember that? At the start of the tournament, it seemed like there was a possibility that this could become a huge storyline for this tournament. One that nobody was really paying attention to, nobody really had the bandwidth for. Like, at this point, do we really, two years, two years, right? Two years, almost two years after tennis has returned. Almost. Almost, for COVID to finally derail a tournament. And of course, it would make sense because measures are more relaxed than they've ever been. We find out first that Boskova tested positive for COVID-19. And then after... Barbara Krejcikova went out to Diane Parry in the first round saying that she just ran out of gas. She then tests positive for COVID-19 and has to pull out of doubles. Right. So I was thinking, okay, if two players have it, there is a huge potential for this to spread in the women's locker room. They may have been playing while being infectious. Luckily, that did not happen. To date. So far. But uh, Annette Contivate has said that she's really struggling with the after effects of having COVID. Mm Mm-hmm. Irina Camelia Begu mm-hmm. bounced her racket. Should have been defaulted. Yeah. Bounced her racket and it went into the crowd. Narrowly missed a child, but the child got scared and started crying. Why did she get to continue that match? Mm. The, a, these rules are so weird. A $10,000 fine. Rublev lost his shit. Again. again. <laughs> Bounces the ball off the court and nearly hits an official behind him. It... It actually looked like the ball knocked his hat off, but it looked like the official was trying to dodge the ball and knocked his own hat off. I mean, really, why are we parsing here? Why are we parsing nearly hit a child, nearly hit an official in the head? Forget it. Like, default. Rublev 2 is constantly, literally, beating himself up during matches. Yes, it's usually self-inflicted. I should say, like, his anger is usually directed at himself. But I understand that the umpires are acting within the rules, but the rules need to change. Rublev says he he doesn't need to see anybody for his issues. No, he's fine. Totally fine. Totally normal behavior. You wanted to talk about, or you are dragging me into talking about this uh, Martina Navratilova crusade mm-hmm. against trans women playing in women's sports. Right. And it was prompted because... At one point, I had three Twitter accounts. My personal account, the BodyServe account, and then for a couple active years, I was running the Tennis Pods account. I've since 
deactivated that account. And I don't know which one it is, but almost every night I get an email with tweet roundups. It's so weird. And yeah. I usually... You can turn those off. Yeah. I know. I'm just so lazy to do it. But lately, they almost all have been headlined by Chris Evert tweeting something having to do with Martina's crusade in support of. Yes. Chris Evert was not involved in this for a long time. Martina's been on the subject for years. And Chrissy has only started chiming in recently. And I don't know what the decision-making process was. I, I don't know what sort of won her over, but... I can tell you what doesn't hurt. That every time Martina or Chrissy tweets about this issue or delves into these waters, there is so much affirmation that comes in the replies. There sure is. And, and it is one of the most depressing things because I would say minimum 90% of the scores of replies... Are like, oh my god, queen, yes, stand up for women. Right. Stand up, protect women's sports. You were a champion back in the day. You're a champion now. We need you. I don't want to get into the whole debate. If you want to hear the research, you can listen to one of our past episodes where we kind of detail it at length. But I just, I cannot abide Martina Navratilova, this gay icon who purportedly, I mean, based on her Twitter timeline, is very much a hashtag resistance, you know, left-wing, blue-wave kind of person, going on Piers Morgan's talk show. Somebody who has made a career of attacking women, specifically black women. Mm -hmm. First of all, to talk about Naomi. Well, I see this as an entryway to talk about... The real issue. The real right? issue, right? Because, so first of all, Talking about Naomi Osaka's every word and every decision is an industry. People are making money off of it. It's generating clickbait. Uh, I wouldn't put it past some of these talk shows to pay their sources. This isn't exactly the Washington Post as far as journalism ethics are concerned, okay? Anyway, Martina goes on Piers Morgan, who is a noted pig asshole. Okay, are you done? Why, why would she, Why? Why? Mm -hmm. Would she go on this show, a noted misogynist, a demonstrated one, to talk about Naomi Osaka, the most inconsequential, I like to play for points, so I don't know about Wimbledon. Who cares? Is that even what she said specifically? Like, who cares? And then Martina says, I don't understand the mentality. Back in my day, I was playing for trophies. I wasn't mm -hmm. playing for points. Or money. And at that point, I was like, girl. We've we've got to snap back into reality here. Like, who are we kidding here? Back in the day, prize money was a blip compared to what it is today. You've talked about extensively about how many endorsements you lost once you were outed. Mm-hmm. Once the world in the 80s, and it was a horrible thing to have, have happened to you, found out that you were a lesbian, that you lost a shit ton of money because of it. So, like, forgive me if I don't believe that. Yeah. But she also talked about the issue of trans women in sport on the Piers Morgan show and said trans women participating in women's sports, quote, without mitigation will be the end of women's sports. And again, again, we hear the straw man of without mitigation, with no interference. 
there's there's no major league or association where trans women are participating with no mitigation. It's simply a lie. In the NCAA, there are even, this is a, actually a pretty loose, or it was up until a few months ago, a pretty loose regulation compared to a lot of leagues, you know, have rules about uh, testosterone levels and how far into someone's hormone replacement therapy they need to be in order to compete. So I think first we need to call out that straw man. Trans women are not asking to participate in women's sport without mitigation. Wherever you stand, we need to be honest. But we kept being told that this is happening and it's going to be the end of women's sport. And we're given a few anecdotes. Some of these anecdotes are from middle school, high school. We have Now we have Leah Thomas as, as kind of the boogie woman, unfortunately for her. And we see mainstream stories in the New York Times kind of presenting this both sides, very mainstream, flip-floppy version of what's happening. And what the New York Times and what Martina Navratilova are not talking about, which is right beneath the surface, is that this fight is now mainstream because of far-right Christian organizations like the Alliance Defending Freedom. That organization was not mentioned once in that New York Times piece that came out that Christopher Clary praised as being very thorough and very honest. The Alliance Defending Freedom wrote the legislation across many states, and it goes beyond sports, right? It bans hormone replacement therapy for kids. And in that legislation, we talked about this last year, they use Martina Navratilova's words. And she says she doesn't support that stuff, but those are her words that is giving fuel to this actually very successful push. And we know now that the same folks who for decades have been pushing for the repeal and abolition of Roe versus Wade, that that is all but a reality now, that the next step is to come for queer people. Right, and like the, the, the sub-community within the LGBTQIA umbrella that's always going to be the first target and has been the first target continues to be trans people. Mm-hmm. Like this is an easy target. This is a linear progression. This is not stopping. That train, that bus has left the station. And these people are getting free labor from Martina Navratilova to make this happen. Right. And again, again, I'm not saying that she agrees with those folks, but we've seen in the past that some feminists will take the help from the far right, from the Christian right. It happened in the 70s against porn and sex work. It's happening now against trans women's participation in sport. And we need to be honest about it, whether you agree or not. And I'm not even, I I don't want to debate trans women's participation in sport. I really have no interest. What I want to do is not obfuscate who the players are. Where's the money and who the real interests are behind this? So you have, of course, you have legendary sportswomen who are afraid that women's sports will be lost to big, strong, strapping trans women, right? The way that they talk about these people. But Martina is also retweeting hideous, hateful transphobes on her timeline. This isn't, I love trans people, but you've got to go through and see some of these retweets. The LGB Alliance, people, a hate group, 
that has removed the tea from our community. But this is exactly how she's even presenting it. She was on Piers Morgan saying, I want to be clear. I'm all for supporting trans women for being who they are in regular society, but... Right. But look what's happening in the world to trans people and what will happen to the rest of us if we're not careful. But I, you know, I feel like we're in a really, really dark period at the moment and things could go left really easily. Like progress is not linear. In this right? case, go really, really right. Uh, Far right. Exactly. This so, segment this segment was started. The transition from Naomi to the anti-trans rhetoric was started by Pierce and her lamenting the fact that you can't even talk about this stuff without people just going off oh, it's, at it's, you with it's the, cancel culture. the fervor that people drum up, the furor, the rage for you just having an opinion. Well, newsflash, nobody's asking for this opinion. And this also, is we're allowed to have opinions too. No, but nobody's asking for this opinion. Truly. You have your platform on Twitter. You decide to tweet this stuff. You have made this your cause. So like, don't be, don't be here trying to be like, oh no. That you, basically you're the victimized party. Right. Because trans people, I mean, we don't need to go through the statistics of suicide and murder of trans people. I What I want is that if you're going to take on trans women in sport, but say, I love trans people otherwise, then I want you, I want to see you out there. I want to see you marching. I want to see you retweeting, donating money to trans causes other than sports. Because this is a persecuted minority within a minority. Like your contribution has to be outsized if you're going to go on this crusade. I need you to prove it. One of the more sinister aspects of this, too, is that her words and her opinions carry a certain amount of heft and is able to be used by the far right because of it, in large part because of her stature within our community. Oh, of course. But more insidiously, it's being used by mainstream journalism and New York Times. You can see it as the rational opposition voice. I mean, Chris Clary tweeted today about how, you know, Martina's views sound so reasonable. You know, that's just not a studied view. In my view, the New York Times piece by Powell was a failure. It spoke to one sports administrator. And you know who that was? Sebastian Coe. Mm. Okay, I, I mean... Who is a former athlete. Yes, but also their trans athlete policy is currently in litigation. Like... I, it's just, it's crazy to me that you wouldn't speak to people who actually work in sports. Right, but Not we, just athletes. We also get told all the time, I've done my research. Well, you should do your research. The scientists agree. Which ones? Which peer-reviewed studies? Chris Evert tweeted at someone, do some research and stop being ignorant. And I just find it ironic. Why? I'm not going to say that without me asking you why. Uh, <laughs> do I really... I, no, I'm not going to go further. Like, if you if you tell somebody to do their research, like, you you better be armed with peer-reviewed studies. Well, this is the time that we're in, right? Yeah. Everybody, with or without a formal education, can read something on the internet and then present it as fact as having done research and then use their pulpit to then say, like, this is the gospel. What research did you do? So, uh, anyway, I didn't really expect to get here. And we were talking the other day 
you you dragged me into this this discussion because i was really annoyed uh, by after it. I was you really annoyed no by i have it. to say like it makes me sick it really does make me ill when i when i see stuff like this uh these these people were tweeting stuff like this on fucking christmas day mm-hmm. christmas day do you remember like yes. it, it is actually really upsetting which is why i think it's worth talking about and i don't think a lot of people are talking about it in tennis martina and chrissy are such icons and they're people who i admire so much it just sucks you know there's there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of research on this topic that still needs to be done and i'm not saying that i'm right i'm just saying you need to come at this with love and care that parents should be the ones involved in making these decisions for their children that state governments and federal governments should not be legislating children's bodies should not be making the adolescent lives of this of this already persecuted demographic even harder like we know the statistics on suicide for lesbian and gay youth let alone trans youth like do these Mm -hmm. people think that this stuff is easy for trans youth to go through right when it's talked about like if this happens, it will be the end of women's sport altogether. What you're doing is putting maybe an inadvertent target on the backs of trans youth. You're just putting an even yes. bigger target on them because we know what it's like in the majority of red voting America. This, like, I mean, this is a convenient boogeyman, right? Like, this is a way to get votes. And I, I really honestly believe, like, once the far right get what they want from feminists you're next like abortions out do you know what i mean like once once they have your sign on they don't need you anymore what we're being told is the big big problem is so infinitesimally small compared to the outsized burden borne by trans people right, right. like this is not at the end of the day, this is not an issue. And as far as the issues facing women's sports, we have a former USTA player suing the USTA because her coach groomed and abused her. The USTA has an active public list of 81 people banned from the USTA for sexual harassment and sexual abuse of players. When you This talk, is an issue. When you talk about what is actually detrimental to the development and survival of women's sport this is nowhere near the front page we're talking about getting eyes on women's sport changing the chauvinistic sexist patriarchal culture that necessarily demeans and diminishes women's and girls participation in sport like that that is Let's talk about right. Let's do work on that. We're talking about athlete development programs that fostered and hid abuse for years. There are a lot of issues facing women's sport, and I just, I can't agree that this is one of the big ones. At how many levels of sport, from youth on up to college and professional, do girls and women get weeded out because of whatever structural fuckery? That, it, that are the actual real-life threats to the survival of women's sport. Yeah. I, you know, I think we should wrap up. What I want to leave you with is 
the ask to just interrogate who is supporting this, right? Who is who is saying hooray to what Martina is saying? And remember that the enemy of my enemy is not my friend. The support you're getting is not necessarily good support. And the fact that scores upon scores of regular Joes and Nancys are like, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. Go, go, you two. That doesn't mean anything. Like, And then they go vote for Trump. Right? Like, <laughs> studies on all manner of trans issues are still very new. Still very new. There's so much that we, that you, that everybody doesn't know about. So, like, when people are like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense in the context of what? That is not affirmation of anything. Mm. You wanted to add a follow-up on... Uh, did I? <laughs> I think you wanted me. So we cut this part from the last episode because I don't think I articulated myself very well. But uh, back to the Wimbledon ban of Russian players and then the WTA and ATP's decision to rescind the points from the tournament. They leaned on the language of discrimination. It was rooted in human rights. Discrimination by nationality. And I just wanted to point out that I'm not saying that I agree with the decision because I don't think I do, to, to ban Russian players. But to call it discrimination is misleading, and I think incorrect. Because in the world of international relations, this is actually a sanction, right? This is saying a nation's actions are reprehensible, and we're taking action in whatever little way we can. If you banned the South African Davis Cup team, would you have called it discrimination by nationality? No, I don't think so, because in the Western world, it was pretty universally held that South African apartheid was wrong, at least by the time that we reached the 80s, you know, Bruce Springsteen and and everybody refusing to play in South Africa, major sports leagues banning them. I think, to me, the, the language of discrimination rings a little bit hollow in this case, because there does have to be some room for political action by sanction. And again, it's really more of a linguistic choice because I'm not even saying I agree with Wimbledon's choice. Mm-hmm. Was that was that okay? I have nothing further to add on this. I just know that this was something that <laughs> it it lingered with you for a while. It did, yeah. I I think because I read it closely and I was like, that doesn't feel quite right to me. It also doesn't jive with what we hold to be discrimination based on protect quote unquote protected classes. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that's it yeah uh mid roland garros episode done we have a title what is it i know you have it written here somewhere if is a dangerous word yeah if 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 is a dangerous word no 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 if 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 it's a very dangerous word (laughs) if doesn't exist (laughs) that was the first version Mm -hmm. if nadal played djokovic at midday instead of at night under the roof would this have happened? Would this have happened? If his back didn't get hurt in 2014, where would he be? Where would Stan be? Like, mm-hmm. if doesn't exist. It's a and, very useful uh, way to live your life. Wouldn't because it be amazing not to have to learn the conjunctive tense in a foreign language? If if doesn't exist, you don't need to know. Oh my God. That would be so nice. I think it's even more useful to live your life by not being rigidly adherent to the if. Because then you can just move on. Mm-hmm. I feel that's that's very like Zen Buddhism. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. 
And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. This is The Body Serve. You can find us everywhere if you go to linktree.com slash The Body Serve. All our links to everything, Instagram, blah, 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 blah. That's all there. If you've enjoyed the show, uh, hit us up with a review. Those are always fun, provided they are five stars. <laughs> Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.